Matthew chapter 1. I don't know if I've ever had an opportunity to do this, but I just want to read with you how we got our Messiah. We've been studying the biblical doctrine of the incarnation of God the Son into the flesh of mankind. And we have as a consequence of Christmas the fact, forevermore, that's forever true, and don't let anyone ever try to back you off of this, that God the Son, the Creator, took on the flesh of mankind at a point in human history which he was holding together by the word of his power. And entering into this space of t- space and time, this creation that he was sustaining, he became one of you, one of us, thereby elevating the human race to a height we could never imagine. And it doesn't stop there. He died for our sins. He redeemed us from our brokenness, from our sinful nature, from Adam's sin, from the sins we've committed. By dying for our sins on the cross, accepting the cup that the Father had planned for him. And that is the gospel that Jesus died in your place and took God's wrath on your sins in Christ so that you wouldn't have to suffer. You couldn't fully, exhaustively, successfully suffer for your sins. Jesus took away the sin debt that we owed, and he had none of his own. And he did that in the flesh of mankind. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And that is the reason, the ultimate reason for the incarnation, but it isn't the end of the doctrine of the incarnation. You see, Jesus Christ is God the Son in the flesh of mankind, truly God and truly man, and one person forever. He goes on forever and ever in a resurrection body like you and I will receive, or rather will receive one like his. We will be like him in resurrection And not as God, but as resurrected humans. And Jesus isn't just a resurrected human. He's a resurrected and glorified and exalted human. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the day star. He is the one who has been exalted at the place of the right hand of the Father. And that is your position and mine because we're in Christ by virtue of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The union that we have with Christ through the agency of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, uniting us to him. And this is an exaltation and a glory that is ours right now that we can talk about. We can ponder, we can imagine, we can thank God for, we can praise him. But as, as Calvin said, we're just little babies lisping up to our creator. We barely can grasp what is true of the glory that is ours in Christ. And when you talk about glory to God in the highest, which is what the angel said, we just sing it in Latin, uh, Gloria in excelsis Deo, glory to God in the highest in Latin. What we're saying is that God is highly and most, most excellently exalted above all things and all persons and all of creation We're saying what the angels say in Isaiah chapter 6. And when you hear and think of God's glory, when you consider the majesty of who we're talking about and the humiliation of becoming one of us, that is the doctrine of the incarnation that most importantly impacts us. Because we're told in Philippians chapter 2, we're supposed to think this in ourselves, which was in Christ who had that exalted glory and then became like a slave, like one of us. And he did this so that he could pay for our sins on the cross. And because he humbled himself to the point of the death of the cross, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2.9, which we saw last night, he is also highly exalted. The Father exalted him, super exalted him, and gave him a name above every name. And that is the glorification of the slave. That is the beauty of the incarnation pattern that you're called to. You're not just called to humble yourself and disregard yourself and concern for others. You're told that that is a pattern of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt you at the proper time. The pattern of the Lord Jesus Christ isn't just the cross. It's the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the session at the right hand of the Father. And that is your destiny and you need to embrace it and love it. And so how did we get from glory to this glory, from the glory of eternity past with the Father to the glory that he has now? Well, it came through a manger in a backwater, in a place and time which nobody thinks is important historically, which uh, wasn't about rich folks, which wasn't about um, the important uh, uh, headlines of the time. It wasn't about the Roman Empire. It happened in the Roman Empire. And so let's sink in a little bit and hear... 
of the story, the way the New Testament presents it, how did we get to the incarnation? The way Matthew tells us as he begins his portrayal of Christ's person, life, and work. He starts with the genealogy that leads from King David, um, actually starts with Abraham, but it goes, it shows us that he is from King David um, in, a, in the royal line through Mary's husband, Joseph. The genealogy goes through Mary's husband and Matthew to Joseph, as you might, and I'll just survey, we won't read, but I'll just survey with you. The way Matthew 1 presents it, it is a 14, 14, 14 genealogy. The numerology uh, in Jewish gematria, Hebrew gematria for David, his name adds up to the number 14, and you have three 14s in the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew, um, showing something that's memorable and also showing you the line from Abraham through David to Joseph. Now, Joseph is not the father of our Savior. He's the stepfather of our Savior. He is the one who raised our Savior. He is the one who's legally the, legally, uh, the father of our Savior. And in that sense, you have the connection to David's line and Joseph. And as I leave the concept of the genealogy, I want to remind you of this. The, the coming of our Savior through the line of David could not be from Solomon and Jeconiah. He had to be cut off, just as uh, Isaiah told uh, Ahaz, Ahaz in Isaiah 7. That line had to be cut off. There would be a virgin who would conceive and give birth to a son. And it wouldn't be from the line of David in this, in this way. And Matthew is demonstrating that in great detail. I also want to remind you, as you study the genealogy of Matthew 1, there's four women. They're all testimonies and trophies to God's grace. Every one of these women is not someone that you would expect to be in the exalted and honored line of our Savior, whether it's Ruth the Moabitess or Rahab the harlot, you would, or Tamar, the lady that played the harlot so that she could be impregnated by her father-in-law. In the most difficult chapter of Genesis, chapter 38, don't look it up till you get home. The glory of God is showcased throughout the story in His grace so that when you get to Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. No, I don't want to go there. We're not going to go to the birth of Jesus. You can't talk about Jesus before you talk about his cousin. So let's go over to Luke chapter 1. In Luke 1.5... Luke lays out the birth of another miraculous child who is the forerunner of the Messiah. And just as sure as Malachi concludes that one in the spirit of Elijah is coming to pave the way for the Lord, we hear about his coming and a miraculous birth. And it's, a, it's an amazing story because you have so many things in common with the birth of Jesus. He's named by an angel. He is prophesied to the Father before he can come, and he has to be a miraculous baby because mama is beyond the age of childbearing. So he's like Isaac and Abraham in that way, but he's also like Jesus in that he's a miracle. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. They were both advanced in years. And it happened that while, she was, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, it was his turn to go burn incense in the temple. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was cho- chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Legend would have it, the tradition is, not from the New Testament, but from literature prior and then later, that the fear involved in seeing an angel at this moment is that you are about to die because you have somehow mishandled the sacred task in the temple. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel and fear gripped him, but the angel said to him what angels generally say to humans. Apparently, this is what an angel has to say to you when you see one. Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You will give him the name John. And that means nothing to us except that, well, I have a friend named John, or we have a kid named John, or uh, we know people named John, all of you, John, 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 John. 
But John is a Hebrew name. But it doesn't sound Hebrew to us when we say John, but when you say Hana, you're like, okay, Hana. It's the masculine, the Hana is the feminine, and it means grace. And the angel of the Lord from God's directive is saying the forerunner is presenting the grace of God. That's what John means. It means grace. And maybe that's something you didn't know about the Christmas story. Merry Christmas. You will have joy and gladness, Zechariah, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor and be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. That's how the Old Testament concludes, by the way. That's Malachi 4. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. One of three angels named in the Bible. One of only three. You can say, wait, I thought it was only two. You've got Michael the archangel, the defender of Israel, the, the, the captain of the host. You've got Gabriel, the announcer. Who's the third angel? Halel ben Shahar. Halel ben Shahar, Satan. The enemy of God, the fallen cherub, is named many things, but Romans 12 calls him the devil and that serpent of old, who is also the devil and Satan. Behold, you shall be silent, able to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias, were wondering at his delay in the temple. Maybe they were listening for the bells on the fringes of his robe to see if he was still alive. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized he'd seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant, and she kept herself in seclusion for five months, saying, This is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. And so you have the forerunner prophesied and the conception of the forerunner. And the way Luke tells the story, now we're going to hear of the prophecy of the Messiah. Now, in the sixth month of that pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this moment, at this statement, and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, what angels say to us, apparently when we see them, we need to be told, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. So now the angel gets to name the second uh, protagonist in the story who's really what the whole story is all about. He said, you're going to name the first one grace and the second one savior. Hannah, grace, uh, Yeshua, Savior. Joshua means Savior. And that's what the name Jesus means. It means Savior. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, as promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And that is promised in Isaiah chapter 9 and so many other places. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? Apparently, the angel is sifting motives. He knows why Zechariah asked in a lack of faith. He knows why Mary asked because of a misunderstanding of biology. And so when Zechariah asked, how can this be? He is struck mute. When Mary asked, how can this be? The angel gives her an explanation. How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for this reason, the Holy Child should be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She who was called barren is now in her sixth month. The Christmas story with the forerunner and the Messiah is a family story about relatives. They're close relatives. And so even before we have the first Christmas, we are going to have a family visit. 
For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And now you have that great visit, that great story of Mary coming to see Elizabeth. And why, oh why, must we emphasize that visit? Because we hear from Elizabeth, her worship of God in Christ. And we hear from Mary, her worship of God in Christ as they interact with one another. Remember this, Christmas people, when you have a family visit and you're Christians and you're focused on the things of God, even part of his plan being used in his works marvelously, not in the same way these two women were used, but certainly in in a similar way, God is working in you. Make sure that you can encourage one another in the things of God as these two will do. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country, to the city, uh, to a city of Judah, and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. When Mary, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, "Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb." And now. Has it ha- and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. The baby is the subject. The verb is leapt. The prepositional phrase in my womb means in my womb. And the prepositional phrase for joy means for joy. The baby leapt in my womb for joy. And what you have to do with that is let it speak because God's word in the writing of Luke and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is telling us something about what God is doing through the forerunner before he was even born as prophesied he'd be filled with the spirit even while or from his mother's womb. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. The glorious exaltation of our Savior in the voice of Elizabeth, who knows that her younger cousin's baby is going to be infinitely more important than her own miraculous child. And it's very easy for us to say that whatever is happening to us is all is really the focus. It's the center stage. But for Elizabeth, what's happening to her right now is she's in the presence of the Messiah in utero. She's in the presence of the Savior and the one bearing our Savior, and that to her is center stage, even though she too is having a baby. Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. She is summarizing so much of the book of Isaiah, which you campaigners on Wednesday know very well. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary stayed with her about three months and then returned to her home. Why do we know the story of Mary's visit to Elizabeth? Two reasons, apparently. One is to see that the forerunner does his work because that's what he's been created to do. The forerunner identifies the Messiah. And two, because we need to hear the hearts of these women in their anticipation of Messiah. They're wonderful exemplars to us in these instances. Now the time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child when vitamin K spikes in the baby's body as God knew and designed and as uh, Moses uh, specified. And they were going to call him Zacharias after his father, which is a great name, which means Yahweh remembers or Yahweh has remembered. He remembers us, Zacharias but, or Zachariah, but that's not the name that God said to give them. Give the baby. His mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who's called by this name. Isn't this fun how family gets together and tries to help you make good decisions? But it's just precisely this point that we're going to do something that breaks the mold. And all the families are going to say, Can you believe they named him John? Nobody's called John. The angel. 
God said, name him John. That's the revelation. Notice how God does it. If this was a family in the habit of naming children John, you'd be like, oh, just John. He's another John. You got another John there. But that's not what happened. This completely blows everyone's mind because God has situated history such that he can demonstrate himself. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted, they, he wanted him called. So nothing like when you have a baby for the family and friends and relatives that are all excited to have the new baby to try to make a big division between the husband and wife um, while the baby's still wet. That is just uh, a fantastic presentation of how humans are. I love the presentation when you see in the scriptures of the pettiness of human beings because it isn't just you and me. We are all, humans are like this and we're small-minded and we think of the, the little things are more important than they are and, uh, and we just, we want to have it our way. And one of my favorite uh, literary presentations is Tolkien when he talks about hobbits. These are hobbits. These people are scurrying around. Oh, 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 yeah, she's going to name him John. Well, hurry, hurry, hurry. Go tell Zacharias because, 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 because uh, she's going to name the baby and, and he won't be called Zacharias. Relax, little hobbits. Elizabeth has a brain too. And she and her husband might have had a conversation. But it's just funny how we are, and I probably spent too much time on the hobbits. All right. They made signs to the father as to what he wanted him called, and he, he asked for a tablet and wrote as follows. His name is John. I wish he'd said, ask Elizabeth. But uh, <laughs> basically, it's the same thing. And they were all astonished. <laughs> the astonishment of the hobbits. And at once, his mouth was open and his tongue loose, and he began to speak in praise of God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters were being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them kept them in mind, saying, What then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. After Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, after this, uh, uh, after his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, he said, Blessed be the God, the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from, all, and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, this is a new father of a miraculous child. And he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ because this is all in anticipation of Jesus. What if your whole life was designed like John's to be someone pointing to Jesus and say, there he is? What if that was your only purpose in your life, to point to Jesus and say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? I contend, beloved, that until we realize that that's exactly what our lives are for, until we figure this out, we haven't quite understood who Jesus is and what a privilege it is to make that identification Salvation from our enemies and the, from the hands of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. As you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace, just as Isaiah 9, 2 said. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit and he lived in the, the deserts until the day of his public appearing, appearance to Israel." At this point, I'll flip back to Matthew 2, Matthew 1, verse 18. The birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, as Luke 1 told us. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, see, this is from Joseph's perspective now, not wanting to disgrace her, he planned to send her away secretly. And when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Who do you suppose that angel is? I think it's Gabriel. I think Gabriel is the Christmas angel through the whole story. Joseph, son of David. Son of David. And what does he tell him? Even when you're asleep, if you meet an angel in a dream, apparently the angel has to tell you not to be afraid. 
But he says in this case, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from his sins. Why is our Savior named Yeshua? Why is he called Joshua? Why is his name Savior? Because he will save his people from their sins. Well, let's talk about the name of our Savior for a moment. Very often we will give him the entirety of his appellative, the Lord Jesus Christ. When we say Lord, we are harking back to Exodus chapter 3 and saying, I am. The one who self-exists, Yahweh, the one always translated in Septuagint as Kurias, as Lord. We're saying he is God when we call him Lord. We're saying he's the creator, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. When we say Jesus in our English, there are many uh, uh, tr- transliterations through all of world languages for this name. But the name is Yeshua in Aramaic. That's how they would have heard it. That's how they would have said it, Yeshua. And it's a beautiful name. And we have anglicized this from the, um, from the Hebrew and the story of Moses' successor, Joshua. It's the same name, and it means Savior. The name Isaiah is built on the same root, Yasha. Yasha, to save, or he saves. And so when you say Jesus, what you're saying in English, you're saying a word that in its original Aramaic means Savior. Savior. Now, what is the Christ? When we say the Lord, we mean God. When we say Yeshua, we mean Savior. When we say Christ, what is that? That is a strange word because it is a translation in Greek. It is Christos in Greek, and it translates a Hebrew word, Mashiach. The word Mashiach comes from the verb Mashach, to smear or to anoint, to pour, to smear. And the idea is that he is the Mashiach, the anointed one, the one who has been designated to be king. Go back with me in your heart to Isaiah, I'm sorry, to 1 Samuel chapter 16, when God tells Samuel to take up his horn of oil and go and anoint the next king of Israel. Go back to the caves when David and his three friends lie in in, uh, seclusion, hiding from King Saul and his insanity seeking to kill him. David and his three friends are hiding in a cave that Saul just happens to select to go and cover his feet to relieve himself. And when they say, this is it, God has given your enemy into your hands. We can kill him right now. Let me strike him once and I won't have to strike him twice. Uh, says, uh, I believe Aniah says this. And David says, who am I to lift my hand against the Lord's Mashiach, against his anointed one? Saul was the Messiah. He was the anointed one of his day, the one God through Samuel the prophet had designated to be king. And David became the anointed one. And he was anointed before that happened, when he was also designated by God. Someday you'll be king. I won't lift my hand against the Lord's anointed is David's attitude. This is the backdrop to the idea of the Christos. He is the anointed one. It's pointed to his right to rule as the king over David's kingdom forever and ever and ever. He is God in the flesh of man, who is our Savior and the coming King, who will rule over Israel and over all the nations. That's the name, the Lord Jesus Christ, when you state it, when you name Him. She will bear a son, you will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet in Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated from Hebrew into English means God with us. Imanu, with us, is El, is God. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Now this is the, uh, one of several instances we've had angels give God's word and then humans respond to God's word. What are you supposed to do when you receive the word of God? First, you're supposed to listen because it's God's word. Second, you're supposed to do something in your heart with that and it is to believe it. And the third thing you're supposed to do with God's word, listen to and believe, is it. You're supposed to do it. And this is exactly what Joseph woke up and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Don't forget the way we connect to Christmas. Whatever God has for us, that's what we want to do. 
But he kept his wife a virgin until he took her as a wife, as his wife, and kept her a virgin till she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. That is the Matthew 1 account of the birth of our Savior. But let's get more detail in Luke 2. Now, in those days, a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited, the inhabited earth of the Roman Empire, of those people that fall under the sway of Rome because we have to get our tax money. The story of the birth of the king falls in a historical moment where uh, the Roman Empire is uh, crushing all the world kingdoms. And it is interesting that it starts in this part of the story with taxation. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now, this is the part where these peasants that don't have two pennies to rub together are highlighted as the descendants of King David. They have to go to the city of David to register that, yes, we are peasants, though we are descended from the greatest king in Israel's history. Everyone was on his way to register. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea. Now, why does the Bible say Joseph went up? Because back in those days, they didn't know directions. They didn't understand that Galilee's in the north and the Judea's down in the south. So they didn't realize that they would have been going down to Judea, right? Because they were idiots. No, the reason it says you go up from whatever direction you are, when you go to Jerusalem, you always go up. I understand from those that I love who have been there and worked their calf muscles on these hills that it's always up in elevation because you're headed up a hill from any direction to get into Jerusalem. That's the idea, to, into Judea. They're headed up even though they're going south. He went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem isn't the same as the old city or the city of David um, in Jerusalem. This is outside of Jerusalem, just a couple miles away. And Bethlehem is an interesting name. Bethlehem is Hebrew. Bet is house. It's the second letter of the alphabet. And the word in, in English translates to house. And Lechem is bread or Lechem. It's a segalit. Lechem. Lechem is bread. It's the house of bread. This would be like the, um, the bread basket of Judea this farm country. So the bread of life was born in the, the house of bread, and that is not an accident. It's God pointing to, to, pointing to things for us. To the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. We have this romantic picture of the long journey of the nine-and-a-half-month pregnant Mary on, on a donkey riding from uh, the, the, the northern uh, Galilee down to Judea, and the Bible doesn't tell us any details about that. But we do know that this is uh, um, not the ideal situation you would want to be in. Doesn't, don't these people know I'm carrying the Messiah? Well, no, nobody knows this. All the world knows it now because God has inspired Matthew and Luke to write these things. But in their day, it's completely camouflaged. It's completely hidden. No one has a clue until God puts a star up in the sky and the people from the east come as we read in Matthew 2. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. So we don't know how long and the pregnancies she spent there, we don't really know. We just know that it's time to have the baby. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. We just heard the entire pageant, right, in one little verse. I want you to notice that's all you get about the manger. There's no place for them. And what's the point? What's the point? The point is that the most important thing that's ever happened in all of royal history is completely unexpected, and we're guaranteed that it's unexpected because there's no, there's no rose petals for where to lay, have this baby. There's no special provision. There's just, yeah, go over there in the corner. Best wishes. In the same region where there were, I'm sorry, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And now it gets very romantic to us. 
the story of the annunciation of the angels to the shepherds. And I want to say this, when God throws a Christmas party, he has a very select guest list. He doesn't go check out Herod and the, and, and the Edomian and his, all his many Herod children and the, the Herod world. He doesn't worry about the Sanhedrin. He's not going for the super important people. He's not talking to pretty much anybody except, well, he's going to go after these shepherds watching their flocks by night. And it's thematic. It's been thematic since before King David was the good shepherd of Jesse's flock that became the shepherd of the household of Israel, God's people, because he was faithful to what his father had called him to do. The shepherd has always been a motif for the king under God, ruling over God's people. And so God thematically calls out these shepherds who are out in this region in Bethlehem watching their flocks. Angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. Now, see, in my mind, when I think about this, I've always got the angel above them, but that's not what happened. They're out there on an average, cold, rainy season night. They're out there doing their job. It's at nighttime, which is good because if you want to be dazzled with blinding light, you want it to be dark first. I love God's the way he throws this party. The angel appears before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And I believe that glory of the Lord, that Shekinah, that representation that God is present in his glory, explains the problem people have with God creating light before he created the sun and the moon in Genesis 1. How is there light, and yet there's no light bearers? Well, because God is illuminating with his glory. His Shekinah is always available And it's visible here. God breaks through space and time with his glory. And they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, what did he say? Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Gloria in excelsis Deo. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from him into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, Well, I don't care what that angel said. Let's just keep watching our flocks. No, you always take God's word, you listen to it, you take it on faith, and then you do what it said. Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord, the Lord has made known to us. All right, the shepherds, I'm so excited about the shepherds. I know we all are. They're going to be the ones to start spreading the message. They're going to be the ones in the environs where Jesus was born. The peasants, the lowest, the lowest rank are going to be the ones saying he's here. And maybe you know, maybe it's true, it's, it's speculative that the sheep that they're watching are for the Passover or for the, for the sacrificial ministry of the priests out there outside of J- Jerusalem. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the babies. He lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. Notice that Jesus has been born. No halos, people. There's no halo around that baby. Jesus is born. The angels have glorified and magnified the Son of God in presentation to the shepherds. And the shepherds are bearing this secondary, you know, secondhand message. We know who this is to the parents who have just delivered this baby. By the way, who's the midwife? There's no indication anywhere about how the baby came about, how delivery took place, except that we know there's a stable. I suspect, and my theory, is that Joseph is vital in the story for how our Savior came into the world. And all who heard this statement wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So this is the birth of our Savior, when eight days, it's in this, chronologically, we would stay in Matthew, uh, sorry, in Luke here. When eight, eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name, 
his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And that's an interesting statement. They brought the Lord Jesus to Jerusalem to present him in the temple to the presence of God in, in the sense that they present things to the Lord um, in the ritual cult system of Israel. I think that's a fascinating moment in Luke 2.22, which sounds a lot like Daniel uh, chapter 7, when the Ancient of Days receives um, a presentation from the Son of Man. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord in Exodus 13. They have to provide a sacrifice and pay um, an offering. They have, there's an offering you have to give of shekels um, to God for the firstborn. To rede- it's called the redemption of the firstborn. To offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Well, the pair of turtle doves or two young, young pigeons is the end of the verse. It's actually uh, supposed to be a sheep, a lamb, without spot or blemish. But they're poor. They don't have money for the normal offering that the middle class would give. So they're going to give the peasants offering of turtle doves. Now, we've heard this is the household of David. The house of David, the tent of David, is a ruin. His descendants are peasants giving the lowest possible offering. He, the greatest king in Israel's history, who paved the way for Solomon, the richest man in known history in that time. These are the poorest people in the world. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he, Simeon, took Jesus into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to him, speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their way, to their own way of, uh, to their own city of Nazareth, and the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Well, before you can do that, you have to go to Matthew chapter 2. They're in Judea in chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is the one, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him, gathering together. All the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So where would you go? Well, you would look in the Old Testament. <laughs> That's all they had. They, would go, they, they were learned men looking in the scrolls of the revelation God had given through the prophets. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet Micah, in Micah 5.2, you Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It also says, his goings forth are from eternity past. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. They sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, 
Report to me so that I too may come and worship him. The problem is that this is the point in the story where we're starting to touch on the dominion of God's enemy, where it's most explicit. In Matthew 4, we're going to hear Satan say, all these kingdoms are mine, and I can give them to whoever I wish. Luke 4 is very explicit that he says this. Satan is the ruler of these kingdoms. And the one born king of the Jews is a direct affront to the one they're speaking to. Herod, the Edomian, thinks that he is the king of the Jews. The Herods are a very interesting story. There's a lot of literature on them. There's a lot of intrigue in the political machinations. It sounds very much like something you might imagine in Washington, D.C. or in Little Rock, Arkansas in the 80s. But it's a big mess. It's a big mess what's going on with, um, with Herod. Um, for example, uh, he's super uh, wary of any challenge to his throne, even to the point of killing his own kids. There was a play on words in Herod's day that it was since he kept kosher so he wouldn't eat pork, that it was better to be his, safer to be his pig than his son. And that sounds um, silly in English, kind of, or that we don't quite get the pun until you realize that pig is huon and uh, huos and son is huios. It's safer to be his huos than his huios, and that's a riot. <laughs> because he killed, he had his sons killed who were uh, challenging him for the throne. And so the actions of Herod really are interesting in just a little bit how they're presented. <coughs> the story we have in extra-biblical history of this man and his household um, completely bears out everything that's going to happen, especially the killing of all the boys in a town, uh, a little backwater town on the outskirts of Jerusalem. I want to worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they'd seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. <coughs> A couple thoughts. <clears throat> this can't be the confluence of astronomical things. I've been to the, I've been to the, the um, planetarium for Christmas, when, you know, special presentation of the Christmas star. It's Jupiter and Venus co-locating at about this time in history. You can't do that. You can't do that with this phenomenon. And this is one of my most hated things about Bible study when people try to explain supernatural, miraculous phenomena with naturalistic explanations. I hate that. You know, I've got a book by um, Werner Keller, the, you know, the, the, the Bible as History or something like this. It's a very popular book from back in the 60s and 70s. He's got pictures of manna. You know, it's this thing that grows. It's, it's, it's this gummy stuff that comes out of, a, of an herb. No, manna was a miraculous limbus bread type thing that Tolkien talked about. It's this miraculous bread of angels that appeared on the ground, and it's described as like coriander seed and, and like honey, but, but it, it's a miracle that this thing occurred, and it had miraculous properties. If you preserved it overnight, for example, you tried to keep some, it would rot miraculously, like manna was a miracle. So is this Christmas star. The Christmas star isn't a physical star in the sense of like a ball of gas like the sun or Proxima Centauri. It can't be that. We would have some sort of ma massive gravitational nightmare if it traveled where you could see it moving um, as it went before them. And uh, it would have messed with all kinds of things. This is not what happened. You have another presentation, I believe, of the Shekinah. You have a miraculous light in the sky that looks like a star. Uh, and lots of things in the heavens were called stars. The light, the, 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 the bright things in the sky are stars. And this one goes before them. <clears throat> it can't just be a co-location of planets making a super bright star. It can't be that because it moves and it, it's like designating where they're supposed to go. And I think verse um, 10 is most explicit. It went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. It's like, it's like that scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they finally figure out how to get the staff right and they get the crystal on the staff and the light shines through and it puts a laser beam right on the map where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a great little scene. It's a ridiculous fantasy story. But, but it's this really cool thing with this designation. That's what this star does. It points right at the house. Dink. It's right here. And, and so it just can't be these, uh, it's a comet, it's the Christmas comet. It wasn't a comet. 
It's a miraculous appearing of light from God so that the, these Magi would know where to go. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child and with Mary. Notice it's a house. It's no longer the stable. And they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now, why do you suppose the Magi didn't return to Herod and they went back to their own country by a different way to kind of sneak out? Why do you suppose they did that? Because they were told by God in a dream, remember the story of Christmas is listen to God's word, believe it, and then do what it says because of who's telling you. <clears throat> and so a couple things about the Magi or the Magi, however you say that. They weren't kings, <clears throat> very unlikely that they were sovereigns of any prefecture or any states. They were uh, wise men. That's the right way to talk about them. And we'll still sing we three kings, but they weren't kings. This wasn't lower kings paying homage to the higher king. This was uh, lower men of lower wisdom paying homage to him who has become to us wisdom and righteousness and salvation. Um, there aren't three. We don't know how many. It's the plurals. It just talks about them in the plural. And they're very flat characters. We don't have any backstory. So I love the names of Balthazar and Caspar and the other guy in the tradition. But there are three. Do you all know why they've traditionally said three? Three gifts. They gave three gifts. And so, well, it must be three different magi. And so that's not um, necessarily true. If you tried to do that with our gift giving, uh, you would conclude that there were a lot more of every one of us if we gave more than one gift, uh, if you try to do that kind of math. All right, so the three kings. Um, where do these guys come from? They come from the east, and there are two theories about these gentlemen. One theory that's new and popular is that the east technically would be, um, you know, from like, uh, the, um, if, you, if they're coming from Persia, which is what I think, then that would be from the north because they're coming by way of the Fertile Crescent. And so they started in the east, but they would have come from the north, and that's how it would have been said. But east would have actually been Arabian. So these are Arab people from Saudi or something that are, um, that are coming over, and, and they're disconnected from the Scriptures in any other uh, presentation, any other expectation. And I think that is uh, an interesting thing, especially for people that are coming from that, um, that heritage, that they, they want it that way. But I don't think that's what this means. I think it is people from Persia. And I think that these men are, are wise men. The last time we saw wise men doing anything with Yahweh, they were in the schoolhouse of, da of Daniel, the great wise man, the great magician or conjurer or wise man, all those words, all those nouns used to describe the college of magicians, the Chaldeans, that Nebuchadnezzar started with the deportees from, uh, from Judea in 605 and 597 B.C. And uh, then uh, the, uh, Darius and, the, um, and, and Cyrus inherited when they took over from uh, Babylonians and became the Persian Empire. The, this is the wise men. <clears throat> and if you read Daniel chapters 1 through 6, you get a lot of narrative about how these people interfaced with the king. And this was going on, actually, if you go back, this is going on back in Exodus with Pharaoh. The kings always have their magicians. The kings always have their science. They always have their way to know better. There's always their Fauci guy that knows uh, the science and can tell you I'm the authority and I'm the person with power and I'm going to say. And so it's not whether or not you, you, the kings have learned people to talk to. It's whether they know anything. And so remember the story of Pharaoh and, and Moses. Pharaoh has magicians who are able to replicate the miracles that Moses does and the power of God. They can do several of the miracles. They can turn water to blood. They can turn their staffs into snakes. Moses can't turn a staff into a snake. He just does what God says. God turns the staff into a snake. But there's demonic power in the court of Pharaoh, for example. This is back in 1400s B.C. This is always something that goes on. And so this is that group. These are what these wise men are. They're part of that tradition of the College of Science, which would be astronomy and astrology, all science and magic are all the same kind of stuff. 
in the learning of the courts of the east of Persia. And I believe that these men know to look for the star because they were connected not that many generations before to Daniel and those that were those, those Israelites who were in uh, the, uh, the deportation, the Babylonian captivity. I think this explains the Magi, and I think that's very interesting that they're anticipating the one born king of the Jews to whom they must come pay homage because we are reading what they had access to. For us, it's thousand year, thousands of years later, uh, 1,500 years later. For uh, them, it was only 500 years ago that Daniel from Yahweh, the God of Israel, had all the answers to Nebuchadnezzar's problems, had all the answers to Darius's problems. He was empowered by the spirit of the holy gods, as it says in Aramaic. And, uh, um, for example, uh, Daniel 2. And, um, and so that, that, that imprint, that impact is still there. That's a, a magnificent story, actually, the, the impact of God putting his people into the Gentile world in the various times that he's done it. Um, we, we think our whole culture is based on the great philosophers of the 5th century B.C., the 400s B.C., 100 years after the Babylonian captivity, when Moses' exquisite reasoning has been placed into the Gentile world and the, person, and, and the persons of his people. And I think that God has impacted the world much more than we think through the Jews. So they go to Egypt um, in uh, verse 12. I mean, they flee. And and when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Matthew 2.13 in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still at night and left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken of by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt, I've called my son. And then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. And then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And I told you, this is the place in the story where we realize Jesus has been born on foreign soil. He's been born as a, a beachhead. It's a D-Day sort of landing into a world that is opposed to him. And God is more powerful than the devil, but God is permitting this darkness to proceed and Jesus comes to vanquish it. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, that's Herod Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. And then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee, came and lived in the city called Nazareth. It is was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, who shall be called a Nazarene, which is a tough prophecy to find, actually. And so the summary of our Savior's life as a child, how does it go? We have the story that the only, the only youth narrative of Jesus is when they go to, to visit Jerusalem, and uh, they lose him, and he's in the temple reasoning with the rabbis. And we won't read that story, but I want you to hear how God summarizes the life of our Savior. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. That's a great story. That's what happened. That's how we received our, our Messiah. There was a party, but most people weren't invited. Most people were they invited, or they had been invited through God's prophets in Israel for generations, but most people had rejected it. The long-expected Messiah is the much-rejected Messiah. But God isn't the slightest bit rebuffed by that. Greater is he who's in you than he who's in the world. Remember Luke 1.37. Nothing will be impossible with God, even breaking through what's broken about us and saving us from that brokenness. 
in this marvelous, miraculous way that we've seen in history with the layers of man's disrespect, man's rejection, man's impropriety, and God's working through and around and despite. Our Father, thank you for our Savior. Thank you for a life that we can live where it's always Christmas because Jesus has always come. And we thank you that as we read together, we have in our mind's eye images and thoughts. We long to see what we read. But today, Father, we walk by faith and not by sight. We long for the day when it will be forever and ever and ever, not by faith, but by sight. Until that time, according to your protocol and your provision, let us look at your Son ever more and more through your Word and come to know Him as you provide today. We pray in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen.